Okay. I've got a lot to say about hospitality, so I'm going to jump right in because we're getting on to something next week, and in two weeks we're starting the Gospel of Mark. So, <clears throat> release the fire hydrant. Um, Jesus said a bunch of things about loving other people, about loving strangers, about loving people who you don't already love a lot because you do. The, here's, the, here's the corresponding problem. One of the reasons I think Jesus said so many things about it is because the human race has an extraordinarily bad record on it. We, oops, we're a little ahead of ourselves there. We have an extraordinarily bad record on neighborliness as a race, meaning humans. And so I think the main idea of what Jesus is doing when he talks about this stuff is, is we have to recognize the situation so that it all kind of comes in in its proper context. And that is that human beings are constantly trying to limit the, co the scope of our love responsibility. We are constantly trying to limit the scope of our love responsibility. We do not want the responsibility to love more people. Who woke up this morning and was hoping that you would get the responsibility to love and care for more people. All right, wait, we've got some people in the back. That's fantastic. When Jesus talks about love and hospitality and neighborliness and all these things, he, he does it in a, a method of discussion that I like to call therapeutic infuriation. I'm not encouraging you to use this on your kids, parents, or spouses, but this is a mechanism Jesus uses, and I'm just going to call it therapeutic infuriation. That is, there are some things that we don't want to do so much, and we're so unwilling to hear them, that the only way he's ever going to get through to us is just to infuriate us. Just make us spit angry, drunk, seeing red mad, and then later on when we come down off of that, we kind of go, yeah, maybe he's got a point. Um, I told you last week that when I got into this, I just wanted to preach a nice cheeky little sermon on hospitality that you would welcome people to the church. Because that's incredibly important in the life of any church, is to be a welcoming community. We can do just the sexiest stuff on Sunday, and if we don't love and welcome people, nothing is ever going to happen. It's just, people be just, oh, it's a nice little show they put on, except I didn't really like it. You know, that's, that's how people feel. If we're loving and welcoming, it makes all the difference in the world. And so I, I got into this with the idea of trying to help motivate us to that end, right? And what I said last week was I kind of got in over my head on this thing. Once you open, it's one of those things, once you open it, it's really hard to close. It's like one of those packages of Limburger cheese that really should be in a safe. And they just, they just think that if you wrap it in a little cellophane, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. You, I mean, once you get it open, you can't close the thing. And so you start reading along, you get to Luke 10 right? This is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which ends with basically be neighborly to everyone, right? You flip over to Matthew 5 and it's love your, oh here, I have a slide for this. You flip over to Matthew 5 and it's um, love even your enemies and those who persecute you, right? So it's kind of a big breath, kind of big death, already getting a little out of hand, right? And then you flip over to Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats, right? And what you find out is the good people and the bad people in that story keep asking Jesus, Jesus, when did we see you like in need? 
Apparently, being loving is, you can miss it, right? That there's a danger of just missing it. And if you miss it, excuses won't work because the parable right before the sheep and the goats is the parable of the talents. Remember the guy who got one talent and was afraid to do anything with it, so he just buried it. And then he said to the guy, well, I just buried it because you're kind of a bad guy and I didn't want to lose your money, whatever. Well, what happened to him? Not good things. So it's missable. You can't use excuses. And then in Luke 6, it's just plain unreasonable. And, and 14, Luke 6, um, 29 and 30 is, if somebody takes your coat, just go ahead and give them your shirt. You remember that passage? Somebody comes and takes your cloak, give him your tunic as well. I mean, that's what that means. I mean, strip down your boxers and let the guy go. You know what I'm saying? And then chapter 14 is the one I read this morning, right? Which is, you know, whenever you, when you have people over for dinner, don't invite your friends. Go out and get, you know, the most strange people you can possibly find who are the most need of food and have a little party. And it'll be real interesting. And nobody will be able to invite you over to their house and, and you'll be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's all just a big load of crazy, isn't it? I mean, I get done reading all that and I go, oh, this is so wonderful. I just have enough anxiety. I need to get some prescription drugs, Okay. <laughs> And see, if, if you're not a Christian at all, you could just be like, oh, those Christians have a lot to live up to. But, you know, it doesn't affect you. But if you already believe in Jesus, if you're already in, like you're, you're, you're wanting to go to heaven and you believed and you believe the God. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what's with the hospitality room? You know what I'm saying? You're like, so you're already in with Jesus. You already believe he's there. So you already believe you got to do this stuff. And now and you're kind of like, oh. Are you crazy? Right? And so then, right when you think it couldn't get any worse, you know what parable comes, you know what story comes right after the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? Just to insult us a little further? Do you know what it is? It's Mary and Martha! Isn't that fantastic? So right when you're feeling anxious about all the hospitality commandments, what happens? There's a story about Jesus going to somebody's house, she's actually hospitable to him, and he's basically like, you're too anxious. <laughs> right? And you know, when we aren't living up to something in our culture, we're not trying to be all, we're not, we're just not psychologically trained to be all repentant about it. We get anguish, ang- anxious, we get frustrated, and then we get angry. That's what we do. You know, we're Americans. We're just going to another restaurant. I mean, so you read this stuff, and if you just skip over it all and just miss it, be like, oh, Jesus speaks in hyperbole all the time. He really just means you should be nice. <laughs> right? That's, I mean, that's what we try to do a lot of times. But if you actually read this stuff and wade in chest deep, you're kind of like, good And... Oh, Here's one of the reasons why I think we have to be therapeutically infuriated on this. Because I know I need to be therapeutically infuriated on this. Is by doing this, Jesus destroys the two ways we justify ourselves. Jesus wants us to look to him for our justification. Look to him for our happiness. Look to him for our direction. Look to him for what makes us significant, fulfilled, and worthwhile. And this blocks out the two other paths that we're always on. And we're usually on both of them. And one is just freedom that's required for us to just seek our happiness. And goodness, thinking that we're good, morally upstanding people who are people out of respect if they have any sense. Because remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Remember what the guy said just before he told the story? He said, because he wanted to justify himself, he asked, 
who is my neighbor? So you get to the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you can never really be safely a good guy. You can't fulfill the obligation. You can't—it never ends. I mean, that's the problem with— with, you know, you, you read the Torah and you're like, yeah, I can do most of this stuff. Don't sleep with my cousin. Okay, I can do that. But, I mean, you get to some of the stuff and it's like, be loving. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the alien as yourself. And you're kind of like, man, that just never ends. I can't ever be the good guy. The guy who always does that. And so, our, you know, feeling like you're a good, morally upstanding person— gets challenged because Jesus is like, listen, who was invited to your last dinner party? Hmm. Right? And then it also attacks a sense of freedom because the minute you realize this is the kind of lifestyle, if you're, if, if you're anything like me and your sense of happiness is bound up in getting enough margin free time and money to do fun stuff— like have hobbies and go to movies and eat at restaurants and go fly fishing and all that kind of thing, you just know that margin is going to get sucked up by this kind of stuff. And so the freedom necessary to make yourself happy on stuff is going to disappear. It's going to evaporate. And so this is terrifying on both levels. If you want to have fun and be thought of as a good person, and that's where you're on probably one, if not both, of those two plans, it's just designed to terrify you. And I think that's the whole point. I don't think Jesus, where did my thing go? Is, um, is really looking for a church living on pragmatism, worshiping personal freedom so that we can have, all, so we can always make whatever choice we want, so that we can always be as maximally happy as possible, right? I don't think he's looking for a church like that. Do you think he's looking for a church like that? Because I don't. I know I want to be that guy when I wake up in the morning. I know that there's a part of me that always wants that. But when I read the scriptures, I don't see Jesus looking for a church like that. Right? And then on the other side, I don't, th- I don't think Jesus is looking for a moralistic religious church that's constantly protesting about how good we are. How well we fulfill all the requirements. I think Jesus intentionally wanted us to despair of ever possibly living up to what he told us to so we'd actually be dependent on his graciousness to save us and forget being neurotic about what we have to do and just go about doing it. You know, remember the guy who wanted to justify himself? He's like, yeah, so just go do what that guy did in the story. Parable gets rid of him. Yeah, just, just go do that. Quit being neurotic about being justified. Just... Go be a neighbor. And so I think that all of this teaching on hospitality and Jesus' teaching throughout the scriptures is designed to reform our souls by pointing us to love, by forcing us to love people who are outside of who we would love. Because see, if we just love the people we love, we're just living in a reflection. Right? You, you, you pick people to love, people you like, and you reflect you to them back to them. They reflect you back to you. And it's just, it's just relationships of self-worship. Now, you can still be loving, and those aren't bad relationships, but they're not expanding you because they're reflecting you back to you. As long as you love your people, it's very, very difficult to grow 
And so hospitality becomes this lever by which Jesus forces open this new vista by pushing us out into something, and we don't want to go. It's like your first time skydiving. They're like, buddy, you better jump or I'm kicking you out of here. You got 12 seconds. So, I want to just, I want to, I want to fly over some of this stuff in terms of hospitality. So we get in our heads, I think, a relatively clear, simple biblical doctrine of hospitality. And so this is, I told you this last week, but this is how I, I want to remember the two major components. What hospitality is and what I've got to do to make room for it. And that is, hospitality is loving in the margins from the margins. That is, we need to love people who are in the margins of our lives. And we can only do that if we create some kind of margin, time, money, space, life, in order to give to the people in the margins. And um, I kind of got this from a passage in Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you quickly. And notice that there are both margins are in this. There's the marginal people and there's the marginal resources. Do not deprive the alien and the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I'm commanding you to do this. Now listen to the rest. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt, and that is why I command you to do this. Now, um, this has been used by many well-meaning evangelicals, and I'm not arguing against this to, to just basically argue for welfare reform. Have you heard that? Before? I mean, that's what this, how this passage generally gets preached by evangelicals is, see, people have, even the poor have, should have to work for it, right? Whatever. Okay, the, the, fo- the focus here is that there are marginal people and they need something and you've been marginal. See, po- see, remember the reason for this? The reason for this isn't the poor should have to work. The reason for this is you were slaves, okay? So whatever this means, the logic has to flow from you were slaves and you know what it was like to be slaves, And you would want the guy with the vineyard next door to leave some grapes for you. You would want the person just over here to leave a few olives on his tree for you. You would want the person in the next field over to leave some grain for you to collect and not go and make sure he gets every little grain so that he works his servants to death in his neuroticness of taking every possible thing in and also make sure nobody can take anything from him because it's all his. Be generous. Leave the food on the margins for the people on the margins. The heart of God for us to love the people on the margins of our lives with marginal resources that we draw back in our living so that we can create. Doesn't start with Jesus. It starts right here in the first revelation of the law. So let's fly over these things. The first is hospitality is love in the margins. Who, who, are, who are the marginal people? Is it just the widow and the orphan? Who, the marginal people, I think you can get a pretty simplistic definition from Luke 14. The, the marginal people are the people who can't pay you back. Whatever you give them, 
they cannot immediately at least give it back to you. All marginal means is not in the text box. It doesn't have to mean people starving in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have antiretrovirals. It just means people who aren't in your text box for some reason. There's a part of the page you use, and there's a part of the page you don't use. This is your wheelhouse. These are the people you talk to. This is the places you run. And whoever is here is on the margin. And that could be somebody who is in really, really rough shape. Somebody who's poor and a stranger and a single mom or a widow or elderly. Or it could be somebody who's in a really— Or it could be just somebody who hasn't been here before and doesn't know where the children's wing is. That's on the, but they're not in your text box. They don't necessarily have to be needy people. They just have to be people <clears throat> who God would want you to step out of this box and love. That's all. And some acts of love will take Herculean efforts. You know, they're big efforts like adoption, foster care, missions. There's certain, there's certain efforts that, you know, you're putting more in. And there are others that aren't, but they're all the same basic concept. Loving the margin with margin. It's the same concept. Whether you show a new family where the children's wing is, or whether you, you build and open a, open a clinic in Angola, it's the same principle. The difference is in order of magnitude. <clears throat> Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, so what I really want to get at here is why should such a big deal be made of loving the marginal? Why is it so important for you to love the marginal, right? We, we know intuitively that the people who are on the margins need love, okay? We know that. But why does God continually insist and put in front of us and not let us get away from this idea of loving the marginal? And there's, there's two things I want to tell you this morning. The first is that loving the marginal teaches the gospel in a way loving your text box doesn't. Loving people who are on your margins is acting out the gospel in a way that loving people who already love you isn't. It is remembering how you got saved. Loving people who love you, loving people already in the church, already in the family, already in the body, is a, is a little bit more like celebrating God's redemption that's happened already. That's completely worthwhile. We're going to be doing that forever. But loving the marginal points you back to when you got saved, something we should never be getting emotionally beyond. But it's something we quickly do get beyond and we quickly forget. And so we don't necessarily think of ourselves as people who used to be blind to seeing the truth, or death to God's voice, or in poverty in relation to spiritual things, or a stranger to the family and people of God. And you name how a marginal person is marginal, and that is a picture of you and me before we were converted. One of the things that the marginal person has to offer you is that the marginal person is you. And is me. That's what I was. When I reach out to a stranger, I can be reminded that 
I was a stranger. And now think about this. It will also reveal to you how good God is. Do you want to have a dinner party where you invite only needy people? You really, no kidding, go get the deaf and the blind and the needy and the people with Tourette's shouting the F word every 13 seconds and bring them into your house with your kids and make food and wash dishes and have fun and play Scrabble. Do you want, you don't want to do that. Why? Because you're not as good as God and I'm not as good as God. God is good and we're not. And when you feel that, I don't want to do that. You should, you should be reminded, God does want to do that. He does! He did! He's doing it! When, when, when I don't want to, I don't want to even walk over and say hi to a person I haven't seen. Right? How, how, I get to learn again how shallow I am, how good God is. It will, loving the margin will reteach you the gospel. The second thing is that it proves faith. It, it, I mean, it, it proves faith. It shows the difference between faith and just personal interest put in the disguise of religion. It shows the difference between those two. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Now think about that. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Well, why? You see, you, you have to be theological to think that. You have, to, you have to think there's something about the poor man that God is integrally connected with that when you do something oppressive to him— God takes that personally and is personally insulted. You see, what that means is you have to believe that the poor person actually bears the, a picture of God, that the image of God is in that person, and when you oppress him, you oppress an, the picture of God born out of that person. Now, see, only theology will make you think that. Same deal with what I read earlier about the, about the banquet and who you should invite. What does he say at the end? He says, he says, invite people who just won't and can't pay you back. And then what it says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, it used to be that when people, a generation or two ago, the, the builder generation earlier, it was expected that if you gave a donation, particularly a large donation, it would be anonymous. Have you noticed that that's almost completely gone now? People give donations and they let them leak or they, but they don't say, I want to give this for this purpose. I don't want, I don't want, any, I don't want anybody to know. I want it to be abs. The only people who know will be the IRS. Why? Because Jesus is saying that's an act of faith. Because then nobody will think better of you. Nobody can repay you. Nobody will worship you. Nobody will be more interested in you. You will simply be helping somebody. And if you're going to get any benefit from that, God would have to give it directly. And guess what that separates? Two people who call themselves Christians, but one's really an atheist and one's really a Christian. That's who it separates. 
And that's one of the reasons why practicing things like anonymous donation, respecting the poor and the disabled, and all those kinds of things are integral. They're not just peripheral. They're integral to the Christian faith. They will teach us how to love. They will teach us about God's love. They will teach us how short a distance we've come in our transformation. But they will make us rejoice that God loves us the way he does. Um, there's, a, there's a fairy tale that my daughter Abigail really likes. We have this fairy tale book that a friend of ours gave us, and it's called Frogs and it's called Toads and Diamonds. And I don't know if you know the story. If you have young kids, you may, you may read this to your children. But see, I got my daughter back. And, um, and basically the story is there's two daughters. Um, there's a younger one that was like her dad, an older one like her mom, and the mom is really, the dad's that died, the, uh, old, the mom is kind of a curmudgeon, so is the daughter. And the, and the young girl, she's just sweet, she's beautiful, and so, but they work her really hard, it's kind of like a Snow White gig, and so they send her off every day, like a mile and a half, just to get water from this spring, and so she carries her jug and gets water from the spring and does that twice a day. And she shows up one day, and this beggar woman comes up to her, and as old beggar woman, she asks for a drink. And the girl goes, of course. And so she gets the water and she lifts it up really high so the woman can drink without effort. And she lets her drink as much as she wants and she blesses her and she goes to fill her thing and to go off. And what, and what happens? Everybody knows what happens. Right? The old beggar woman, right, turns into a beautiful fairy and she blesses her. And the blessing is whenever you speak for the rest of your life, what will fall from your lips will be, will be flowers and jewels. <coughs> Now, that, that's supposed to be, I always thought that would be kind of awkward. I think you'd break your teeth. But, <laughs> but apparently it's not like a, they don't come up from your stomach. They just sort of appear here and sort of fall from your lips. So it's a good thing. Um, so, of course, the mother sends the other daughter back to see if she can get the same encounter. And when the, when the sort of mean curmudgeon daughter comes back, um, uh, oh, a, a beautiful woman shows up, sort of, sort of a, a noble-looking woman, and she comes and she asks this girl for a drink, and the girl says, get your own drink. I'm waiting for somebody. Right? She, you know, she throws the, she brought this kettle, she kind of throws it at her and says, you, you know, you get a drink. And, and so, guess who this woman is, right? She's the same fairy, and she curses this daughter that every time she speaks, snakes and toads will fall from her mouth. Okay? And of course, the younger daughter marries some prince, and the other one becomes like the queen of the snakes and toads or something like that, you know? Um, but have, have you noticed, the other pictures from, of course, from Beauty and the Beast, the Disney film, have you noticed that in all the folk fairy tales, the blessing fairies always show up as something marginal? Usually some old woman, old widow, haggard, bag lady. Why? You see, the, the old Germans and the old, the people who wrote the folktales that we read, or wherever the years come from, I bet, I bet if you read folktales from Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, I bet they'll have some kind of parallel to this. That they show up as a bag lady because that's how you find out how, what someone is really like. Right? What do I, I don't know if I said this before, what do I always tell a 16-year-old who likes some boy? Or let's say, let's say they're like a 19 or 20-year-old and they're really thinking about having a serious relationship. What I always tell her, I always say, it, does, it doesn't matter how he treats you. It doesn't matter how he treats you. That doesn't tell you anything about him. Anything about him. You need to have somebody watch him when he is interacting with somebody who can't offer him anything. 
You need to watch how he treats his mom when you're over at his house and he doesn't really know you're listening. You need to observe him when, when there is an event that'll show, because you don't know what he's really like when he's treating you, because he's totally interested. His self-interest is making it so he'll portray himself whatever you, whatever you like, he'll portray himself as it. Watch how he treats a bag lady. Watch how he treats his mom. Watch how he treats his father or his little sister. Is he loving towards his six-year-old sister? If he's not, he's not loving. See, the marginal people will tell us what we're like. They prove our real nature. They prove our real level of sanctification. We can act all we want. These people show us what we're like. When I took Abby to school, there was this, um, last time I read her this story, we had, we had been to school to orientation that day here at High Point, and there was this little girl named Madison who I, we introduced Abby to her, and her mom introduced this girl to Abby, and Abby was feeling nervous or something, and she just kind of turned and walked away. It was, it was kind of rude, and I was, it wasn't my proudest moment, and, um, you kind of let it go because you, know, you don't really know what's going through a seven-year-old's head, you know, when they do that. I don't really know. And so, but we were sitting in, and that night she picked um, toads and diamonds to read. And at the end of the story, I said, I said, sweetie, how is this story like the gospel? And we talked for a little while, and she started, I said, how is the way the fairy acted like a bag lady but really was a fairy. How is that like the gospel? And we, we kind of worked, worked through, and, and I talked to her about this stuff, and I said, and here's what I said to her. I said, I said, Abby, you missed your old lady today. Do you know who it was? It took about a minute. She went, yeah, it was Madison. I said, yep. But she'll have another bag lady tomorrow. And this one will be at school. And you can talk to her because she's in your class. And then I got thinking about who, who's, my, who's my bag lady? Right? And I have a friend from India who's studying at Asbury Seminary trying to get a PhD done. And um, his organization is really excited about getting it, but when the economy tanked, they, their budget went down 40%. And if you're a ministry who, that has a scholar and a PhD program and you're paying men to feed their families $400 a year out in the rural parts of India planting churches, which bill are you going to pay? Right? You're going to pay this one. And so he gets here. He gets to America. He's, he's doing his, he's trying to do this PhD so he can lead this whole ministry academically when he gets back. Training two, three hundred pastors a year for church planting in rural India. And he's got zip and he's got, it's expensive here, you know, to go to school, you know, right? And, um, and he's my friend. God has providentially put me in his life, and he doesn't have anybody else. He doesn't have all these connections like some missionaries have. And I just, Alexi and I sat and talked about it, and I said, you know what? We need to do something more than just give our tithe and go to church and be nice to people. Like, there ought to be something, people, there ought to be people who look at us a little funny for something we do. And I feel like we, this is one of those situations. And so we talked about having them come live with us, and we talked to them about it, but we really want them to stay at that school because um, we want to diversify the education that the, the faculty there is receiving. And, um, and so we just decided to give money that we had not budgeted 
Um, and we started pulling stuff out of our entertainment budget and, and pulling stuff out of our savings and figuring out how we were going to give money that, you know, you know we're, we're a negative asset for the last seven years. Because um, we just, we realized he's our beggar woman right now. He is the marginal person that God has put into our life and said, and essentially asked implicitly, are you going to do anything? How transformed are you? You know? And so then I just, ha- I, it's my responsibility then to turn around to you and say, who's yours? Because she's there. She's there. Who's your beggar woman? Did you miss your last one? What are you going to do when the next one comes along? And I, I want you to know too that, that one of the reasons this is so important is that God raises up marginal people. Right? You remember in 1 Corinthians where it says that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong? God likes to take the marginal and lift them up. And he tends to do it through people loving them. Two of the great, um, great ministers of the last 20th century who led um, post— One of the reasons this church was even conceivable— some of you may not know the history of American evangelicalism. One of the, church, the reasons this kind of a church was even conceivable was in the early post-World War II years, in the 40s, a group of about 12 people got together and realized that there weren't good, there weren't good Bible translations out there for evangelicals that they could actually read. There were, there were bad reference books. There weren't commentaries. Um, uh, uh, European liberalism and American liberals have just taken over the publishing industry. The, the, the seminaries were turning out dramatically, um, theologically unbelieving pastors. And these guys got together and they said, they said this is not okay. And they gave their lives. And, and they just, they've all just died in the last 10 years. And two of them were, well, and one of them was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is a guy, Lloyd-Jones used to deliver milk when he was a kid in a poor neighborhood in London. He was that little dirty kid that carried around little milk bottles. But God had given him a gift of mental brilliance. And by the time he was in his 20s, um, late 20s and early 30s, he was, he was the um, medical liaison to the king and queen. And a few years after that, he decided to give it up to preach the gospel. And he became perhaps the evangelical stalwart along with John Stott for 50 years in England. It's un- incalculable what was done in the church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was Lloyd-Jones in the late 1800s. And this was a, he was the son of a clerk, never went to college. But God had given him a gift. Later on, it was said that he became more prominent in England than the prime minister. He had a mental gift that he could name the name of every person who came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which had a membership and attendance of 5,000. And it was said that he, knew, he could tell you the title and location in his library of all of his 9,000 books. These are marginal people. They were marginal people. But God had put a gift in the marginal person, desired in his providence to raise them to prominence so that his grace and glory could be displayed. And you have no idea what your bag lady is supposed to be. It's unlikely they will turn into a fairy and make diamonds fall from your lips. This is an unlikely scenario. But the possibility that God has destined them for something really cool is not as remote as you might think. The second thing, and I need to do this kind of quick, is that hospitality is loving from the margins. Okay, here's, 
here's the two-minute version of the 20 minutes that I wrote on this. Um, you have to have something for these people. In order for you to love marginal people, there has to be margin. In the way you've ordered your family life, in the way you've ordered your finances, the environment of your home, your time, your access and connections to other people, these are all resources that you have. Sometimes middle-class people or upper-middle-class people have no idea how many resources they have. Because we just think in terms of money, and we think only in terms of our disposable income, not in terms of our overhead that we've created. And so we go, oh, I've only got $600 a month. It's not true. You have assets of time, home. There are, there are thousands and thousands of people that their home is not a sanctuary. For many of you and many of us, our home, compared to where most people spend their time, is this Eden. And we don't even realize that our supper table is a respite for them that is un unimaginable to us because we don't know the shoes in which they walk. But, but one of the problems is, is that we walk away from this, we live this out non-radically because we are programmed in our culture to come up with all kinds of excuses as to why we don't need to do this. Why this isn't that important. We think, you know, yeah, I took some risks back there before I got saved, and then I became a Christian. And the whole point of that was, you know, risk management, right? We, we took care of hell. We took care of some of my bad behaviors. And, and, you know, the whole point is to get the risk level down here so I can be happy. So my life, I mean, you're asking me to do stuff that's going to introduce a significant amount of risk to my life. I mean, if I actually go out and invite people into my life, it's a random process. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who everybody's going to be. I don't know what could—who knows? I mean, if you think about inviting people, you know, there's all kinds of different people out there, and you invite enough of them into your life, and you're going to invite somebody who's kind of weird or mean or abusive or something. Most of us are looking for this risk curve, not this one. I think that this is the Jesus plan. I think this, uh, this is the, Jesus, I'm going to do a little bit of this plan. Okay, here's the, I'm going to give you try to do the one minute version of what I think stops us. One is something I'll just call actuarial living. We live our lives we let the one in a million control our lives. That's what I believe. I believe being abused or being hurt or being sued or being something, the one in a million or even the one in a hundred thousand controls us. I think we live our lives like insurance agents, and I think it's horrible to do that. And I do it. I do it constantly. Listen, there's a reason why we have insurance agents so we don't have to live like them, right? Well, there's a reason why we have actuarial tables and we have insurance. I mean, Lloyd Biddle should exist. We want him, but the reason we want him to exist is so we don't have to think like him. That's the whole point. In fact, Lloyd doesn't even want to think like him at home, like when he's at work. Right? It's their job to manage risk so that we would not be constantly controlled by it and a slave to it. We cannot live our lives afraid to be obedient to Jesus. 
The second thing is battery language. How many times are we going to hear, well, you know, you got to refresh your battery. You got to have time for you. Okay, listen, I think we're on the upswing on that one. I think it's time to pull the reins back a little, okay? We've been hitting the accelerator on filling up your battery for, I think, 20, 25 years now, and everybody's getting pretty good at refilling their battery. Okay, I think the issue is, is here's the issue. If you have a bad attitude about hospitality, it's going to deplete you. If you have a good attitude about hospitality, it's going to deplete you a whole lot less. The same is true of parenting and marriage and work and everything in our lives. And so the worse, the more, un, the more non-biblical we become in how we think about things, the more we move in this direction, the more renewal time we need because the faster we get depleted by stuff that really ought to recharge us. Like hanging out with my seven-year-old. I'm not supposed to have, go, have to go have me time after spending an hour with my daughter. Okay? It's not supposed to work like that. And so if our attitudes are wrong, the battery language is just going to encourage us to be more escapist when we're becoming more ungodly. And see, and then Satan gets two strand, two pieces of pull on the rope for one mistake in our heads. So be careful about battery language. Role exclusion is, I'm doing lots of important things, I just don't have time for this. And I think part of that comes from parental over-nurturing. Thinking, well, I have these kids and I'm doing all these things with my kids, I can't really be taking— Well, it just includes your kids in life instead of making your kids your life. There's this movie called Lady in the Water that M. Night Shyamalan has this um, character called Reggie. And Reggie just works out one half of his body. He, like, does leg presses on one side and, like, lifts on one side of his body, but he doesn't— he doesn't work out the other half of his body. Because he said, I can, I can be double focused. I can be double focused over here. <laughs> double focused. But I see, I think that's what happens. See, if we over-nurture our kids and our kids are the focus, we have them piano and sports and, and like nine sports and, the, you know, they can spin plates and all this kind of thing. Um, but we don't teach them how to take the focus off themselves, go over here and love somebody, what happens is they're going to become more self-centered and they're going to become as neurotic as we are in our parenting of them. And they're going to end, their souls will look like this. And so one of the things we have to do is say, I want to nurture my kid maximally. Yes. But part of that is not wrapping them in bubble wrap. Part of that is not thinking like an insurance agent about them. Not making sure they don't live at all until they have to live totally on their own without my advice and protection. Part of loving our children is inviting them to the Christian life, which includes all of this. And I think the whole point of doing this non-neurotically is recognizing that God first loved us. And so when we do this, we get to participate with God. When we don't do this, we get to remember how good God is, that he loves us. If you aren't a Christian— or you don't know if you're a Christian, part of the point of all this, think about how, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to be a Christian. Look, think about all those responsibilities. No, no, no. Think about it this way. This is how radically loving and hospitable our God is. 
that he would turn to his people and he'd say, buddies, you need to get out there like I got out there. That's how much God wants to be hospitable to you. That's how loving he is towards you. That's how open the gospel is for you. He comes to you, he just asks for faith, which is what? The reception of an invitation. How like hospitality is that, right? You can't receive my hospitality unless you say yes to the lunch invitation. It's the exact same thing with Jesus. He offers everything. He spreads the table. He opens the door. He invites you in. He says, everything, just come. Just believe. Just come in. And we'll be together. And we can wash the dishes together. Why don't you stand for the benediction? I want to invite you... um, if you're new to the church, um, John and I would love to meet you. We'll be in the Welcome Center out there. If for anything, anything either that I've spoken about or there's something going on in your life, there's going to pe- be people up here um, to pray with you at the end of the service. So come and pray. Um, pray with folks about what you're thinking about if you, if you um, have a desire for that. Father, I pray that you would make us a hospitable church, not a neurotic church, not a church continually focused inwardly about how much we're not accomplishing, how we're not living up, and that we get frustrated. Help us to, help us to instead graciously recognize that you love us, that you're calling us to be more like you, that we need to forget about justifying ourselves or scurrying around and just simply be a neighbor. Just go ahead and just Quit worrying about being loving and just go ahead and be loving. And recognize that we can never get confidence in our relationship with you through how much we serve or love or do. We have our confidence in the cross and it alone. And we thank you that you have not constructed this for neurosis, but you've constructed it for maximal love. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming. Go in peace.